from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, December 9th. Now an end-of-the-year Brian Lehrer Show editorial board segment on the year in hate and how to reverse the trend. Our editorial board segments, if you don't know, are when we bring together a few deep and nuanced thinkers about an issue or problem in society. Our last editorial board segment had three guests on congestion pricing for driving in New York City. Today, it's the year in hate. As 2022 is ending with various records we would rather not see being broken, just last week, for example, the Los Angeles Police Department and the Human Rights Commission there released the number 620 hate crimes, a record since they started officially counting in L.A. decades ago, crimes targeting black residents of L.A. on the basis of identity spiked the most, 34 percent compared to last year and even last year, according to the L.A. Blade, while black residents only make up 9 percent of the county's population, they comprised 46 percent of hate crime victims. That's in L.A. In New York, The headlines this week include a hate crime arrest after the alleged perpetrator shot a man and his son with a BB gun outside a kosher market on Staten Island. It was one incident in November, widely seen because it was caught on video, but in a month when the NYPD reported more than a doubling of anti-Semitic hate crimes compared to November last year, 45 anti-Semitic crimes recorded in the city in just the one month. You know about the mass shootings motivated by hate at an LGBTQ bar in Colorado Springs this year and a supermarket in a largely black neighborhood of Buffalo and others. We could frame this conversation as the year in domestic terrorism as another way in, right? The group Stop AAPI Hate which works to reduce hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, reported in March of this year that since the pandemic began in 2020, there have been more than 11,000 reported acts of anti-AAPI hate in this country. And then there's Twitter, where a team of Montclair State researchers tracked a massive jump in what they categorized as hate speech just after Elon Musk took control of the platform recently. There was Donald Trump's dinner with white supremacist and Trump fan Nick Fuentes a few weeks before Trump called for terminating the Constitution. That obviously could be a show in itself. And of course, I could go on with specific overt incidents and numbers that you already know about or won't surprise you. But what about hate that's not so explicit? Expressed not in slogans like Jews will not replace us, but more in terms such as parents' rights or religious liberty. So in this conversation, we'll try to go deeper. Why now? Election season, January 6th reverberation still, pandemic reverberation still, the Immigration Act of 1965. And is the way out of this downward spiral more direct, like in explicit anti-hate solidarity? Or does it have to address other underlying issues? And oh, by the way, is there a year in love to report on too? Our three special guests are Dr. Eddie Glaude, Jr., chair of Princeton's African-American Studies Department and author of books including Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, and An Uncommon Faith, A Pragmatic Approach to the Study of African-American Religion. Some of you know he is also 
an MSNBC contributor and often appears on Meet the Press on Sundays. He also produced a six-part American history podcast this year called History is Us, or you can read it, History is U.S., also, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, Senior Rabbi at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah on West 30th Street in Manhattan, which calls itself an LGBTQ plus synagogue for people of all sexual orientations and gender identities. Just this week, Rabbi Kleinbaum was ranked the fifth most influential faith leader. I don't know how they distinguish fifth from the sixth or the fourth, but fifth most influential faith leader in New York by the news organization City and State. And among many other things, she is a Biden appointee to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for The New Yorker, author of his memoir called The Loneliest Americans. He is also an Emmy-nominated documentary film director. His new film, American Son, will premiere next year as part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. So it's an honor to have the three of you together. Welcome back, all of you. Eddie, Jay, Sharon, to WNYC. Hi. Thank you so much. So happy to be here with all of you. Yeah, thank can we you. can we go around the horn first and just get each of your takes on whether you think the actual amount of hate or the feeling of license to express it actually grew in 2022 or if people are just talking about it or counting it more? Eddie Glaude, would you begin with some sort of shorter term thoughts just on how we might think of this year? Sure. I think this year is is an extension of the storm. Uh, underneath all of this are, are anxieties and panic around the shifting demographics of the country uh, and what it might mean for those who believe that they're losing uh, their footing. And so we have been experiencing in some ways this kind of, cask- you know, this growing storm. It's strengthening um, as the reality that the browning of America is not something in the distant future, but but actually present. So um, this year is just an extension of last year, um, and it seems to me, being a country boy from the Gulf Coast, uh, the tail of the storm is still coming, you know? The Mississippi, tail of the if I remember correctly, right? <laughs> Indeed, Brian, yes. Uh, um, but let me let me challenge you on one little aspect of that, because uh, sure. it sounds like, you know, the progression that's unstoppable as America changes demographically, there's going to be the backlash. But the L.A. statistics, for example, that I was looking at, cited 2013 as a low in hate crimes there um, in the decades that they've been keeping those stats in L.A., and they've been creeping up ever since. So it's not just a straight line to more diversity is going to yield more white hate, is it? No, I think, I mean, obviously there are other factors. I mean, they're, 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 we you know, since 2008, we've seen an intensification of not just simply hate crimes, but kind of the the, the tensions around racial diversity in the country. That is with the election of Barack Obama. And then, of course, the backlash to the Obama presidency was the Trump presidency. And so it's almost an accelerant here, right? So mm-hmm. what you have is some systemic problem in the body of American politics, then exaggerated, like giving giving a diabetic a dose of sugar, right? Mm. And everything just go gets out of whack since, since Trump's election. So I, you're right to say it's not a straight line, but I think underneath it, there are factors, uh, the consistent thread, the through line is, is I believe, the demographic reality. Uh, of the changing nature of the country. 
Jay, will you pick it up from there? Anti-Asian hate is certainly in other people's awareness more since the pandemic began. How would you characterize 2022 on that or any kind of hate? Um, well, I think that when you try and judge things by the number of hate crimes, it's sometimes difficult because those statistics are famously unreliable and uh, you know sort of dependent on how police departments report to the FBI and then what the FBI decides to do with that. And so, and yet I do think that it's undeniable that at least from somebody who is observing, right? Like, and this is any person who watches the news or goes on social media or anything like that, that, you know, it appears that there's just a lot more overt acts of violence. And I think those are the ones that concern people the most. Now, in terms of like whether people say things online or whether or not, you know, some sort of charlatan gets a big platform and says a lot of things like I think those things are a little bit more constant in America mm -hmm. um, and have been constant, you know, for the past 20 years. But I do agree with uh, Professor Glaude. I, I'm sorry, I'll call Professor Glaude just because I was a. Uh, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I was, you know, Professor Gall was like one of my first professors when I was a freshman in college in 1998. Uh -oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Jay. Yeah. Bowdoin College. It was a uh, oh religion God. seminar that you taught. And it was very inspiring to me. But, you know, for my first paper, you gave me a C minus and I think I deserved it. <laughs> and that sort of stuck in my head ever since. Oh, if only like, you had artificial intelligence to write your papers for you. <laughs> no, I think he would have seen through that. <laughs> oh, but. Um, yeah, I, I agree that a lot of this is anxiety about what the country will be. And I don't think it's sort of this one way street where it is like just white people trying to figure out, well, what is the, this this sort of multi-ethnic country that people are 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 coming into? I think that every group uh, in America is actually trying to recalibrate and rethink things through. And I think part of the way in which they think things through and the reason why these crimes get so much attention and have so much uh, political, you know, I guess, energy around them is first because obviously people respond to violence. But also, I think it's because it's become sort of the way in which people process their place in America. And I think that's certainly true for Asian Americans. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's really just like, how accepted will we be here? And mm -hmm. I think that like, as that conversation happens, that that acts of violence that might have also happened in the past now take on like a new political valence. Jay, I read your New York Times newsletter in September that cited four drivers of American politics these days as the financial crisis of 2008, Trump's election in 2016, 10 years of Black Lives Matter and the police murder of George Floyd, and per your own family story and underreported, as you asserted, the Immigration Act of 1965. Maybe the pandemic should be in there too. But, right. but why do you think um, the financial crisis or the Great Recession are still underlying factors today? Oh, well, I think that underlying a lot of what's happening, you know, what uh, Eddie was talking about and what I was discussing was that there's a lot of anxiety around, right? And I think the pandemic accelerated that and that, you know, if you take a very sort of, I think, charitable look at some of the what's happening in terms of people really sort of turning rightward or turning in a reactionary uh, direction, that... You know, if you look around some of their towns, I think if you read something like, uh, you know, um, 
Sam Canonis's book, Dreamland, or if you read some of these other accounts of what's happening in middle America, like to argue that there is no economic dis- destruction there, to say that, you know, people, that young people these days, even in sort of metropolitan areas, aren't feeling a type of desperation. I think that you're sort of missing a lot of the story. There is great economic desperation right now. There is a sense of, you know, uh, how is this country going to treat me? And do I have a future? Do my children have a future? Um, I I don't know. It's something that I think about, too, you know, being relatively privileged and having, you know, I, I I think about it myself. And I think that that accelerates everything, that when you have a sense where young people, middle class people, you know, working class people don't really feel like they have any purchase in the future, then I think that a type of reactionary politics is inevitable. And on the Immigration Act of 1965, which we've actually talked about a lot on this show right. over the years as having um, just changed the tra- uh, trajectory of American demographics because it opened the door so much, you cite Tucker Carlson on Fox calling the Immigration Act of 65 the worst attack on our democracy in 160 years. He wants mm-hmm. to preserve a white European descent, American majority, obviously. But I, I think you were reacting to his framer, framing of looser immigration laws as not just bad policy from his point of view, but the fact that he put it as an attack on democracy. So is is that reference important in that context? Yeah, I think so, because I think that what he is arguing, what you know, some of his, I guess, like intellectual forebears would argue is that what the Democratic Party wants to do is they want to sort of collect people of color, right? Um, Sort of new immigrants. They want to bring in as many people who are not white Christians as possible and that they feel like those people will vote for Democratic by default almost, right? And so that's, I think that's what he means. Now, that that just isn't true as we've seen, you know? Um, And I don't know if you spend any time in any type of immigrant enclave, right? Whether Latino or Asian, um, you will find that many of those people are not progressive Democrats and that um, <laughs> they are not starting, they are not voting that way. And for a while, I think they did. And now it's all over the place and there are swings every single election. And there are many editorials written by people like me who try and make great sense out of all of this. Right. But I think that the end, if you take a 30,000 feet in the air view of it, it's that like, I think that the idea that even if you accept every single one of Tucker Carlson's uh, terms on this type of discussion, the idea that this is resulting in anything is just false. And yet, and if you start to interrogate any of the terms, of course, then you start to think, well, I don't, you know, like, basically, what he is trying to do is preserve uh, a dominance of one type of person. And that, um, you know, anything that is a threat to that is obviously going to be called a threat to democracy. Uh, and, and, and you Brian, want to keep going on that? Yeah. And Brian, I think it's important to think about this in relation to the, the broader context of hate right so this is these this is an element as jay brilliantly just laid out of of replacement theory right and and there's a sense in which what who's driving this this is the globalist a jewish cabal who's funding uh this effort to to replace white 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 folk i mean we heard that out of the mouths out of the mouth of the man who 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 attacked uh life tree synagogue in pittsburgh right so and, if, and and so we have to see the kind and of connections. And, it's, and it's, Char- it's Charlottesville. I think people exactly. misunderstood 
Jews will not replace us, that chant in Charlottesville, because Jews are just like 2% of the American population. It's not like we're going to become a country of 60% Jews. It's Jews are pro-immigration, and that's how they're going to replace us, right? Absolutely. And then you have to think about this. Now, they want to get rid of the Immigration Act of 1965 and go back to what? The Immigration Act of 1924. (laughs) Right, right. right? And remember what that period is all about. It's a period of heightened nativism, a period of of heightened hate, of anti-Semitism and the like. So so we're having history is echoing here. What Mark what did Mark Twain say? It might not. you know, it might not rhyme, but it, it might not repeat, but it damn sure rhymes, yeah. right? Yeah, we're so already is- planning a 100-year um, retrospective on the Immigration Act of 1924 when we hit 2024 in a year and a month. Um, that's when, you know, my family snuck in under the wire at Ellis Island before they closed that door in the Immigration Act of 1924. So those are two such big posts in American history um, that Jay and Eddie, you're, you're right to focus on. Immigration Act, closing doors in 24, opening doors in 65. Mabel in Trenton, you're on WNYC. Hi, Mabel. Hi, um, thanks for taking my call. I just explained to your um, screener that I live in Trenton and a lot of people always uh, put down Trenton as being a dangerous place and other cities, you know, um, but they were repaving the streets on uh, in downtown Trenton. And I get around on a bus because I need to use an electric scooter. And they had um, redirected the, the uh, bus stops and I had to find another bus stop in that area. But I couldn't get up on the sidewalk because the street was much lower than the curb. And I started to freak out because the cars were coming towards me and I couldn't get up on the sidewalk. And this young black man walking toward me, he saw that I was distressed and he asked me what was, what was wrong. And I told him and he goes, it's OK, relax, I'll help you get up there. So he did. He lifted up the front of my scooter and got me on the sidewalk and he just walked away. Didn't wait for a thank you or nothing. And I'm, I looked like a white woman, you know, for all he knew, I could be Republican. I could be whatever. But that didn't occur to him. He saw a person who was in need and he stopped and helped. And I think a lot of people are that way. But we're being gaslighted by the right to believe that the people out there and we're all hateful and we're all murderers. And it's really very disturbing to see that happening today. Mabel, thank you for that story. Arturo in Ridgewood, you're on WNYC. That's Ridgewood, New Jersey, not Ridgewood, Ridgewood, Queens in this case. Hi, Arturo. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much, and good morning to you and your guests, and thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I don't know all of your guests uh, very well. Uh, Dr. Glaude, just a little bit, my son is an 11 graduate from Princeton University, and I've attended a number of the the events that Dr. Glaude has hosted, and I'm so appreciative for this conversation. Um, I'm the incoming senior pastor at the Emanuel Church in Ridgewood, New Jersey, uh, which is a welcoming and affirming church, welcoming and affirming of all people, uh, gender, sexual orientation, race, and, and culture. And we have a um, a platform uh, that was already in place but really took on new steam after the murder of George Floyd, the Community Peace and Justice Network. And we created this online seminar where I had the good fortune of uh, leading this once a month and facilitating conversations centered around race and and hatred. In fact, uh, your colleague, Jamie Floyd, was one of our phenomenal guests uh, during this time. Um, But I'm also an adjunct professor uh, at William Patterson University, so I get to live in both of those communities. And um, I I use, obviously, the resources that are available 
to one as a theologian, as a pastor, as a uh, college in instructor as well. And uh, Dr. Kleinbaum, uh, Rabbi Kleinbaum, uh, when she was talking about love, uh, really took me right to uh, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis's uh, book, Fierce Love, where she really lays out uh, some approaches to how we can do a much better job at really loving each other. And so but my question um, for, for your guest, and, and maybe this is particular to, to Dr. Glaude, I, I'll let you all decide. Um, I, I see that the uh, white evangelical nationalists in, in our country are really um, largely responsible for driving a great deal of, of this hatred. Uh, even as it may appear covert at some at times, and I'm very concerned that both uh, in faith communities and on college campuses, uh, there are folks who sometimes struggle with critical thinking. And so I am wondering um, uh, if you can um, unpack that for us a little bit, address the role that white evangelical uh, nationalists are playing right now, and how how do we go about? Uh, really helping folks to better understand exactly what is happening so that we can live out Arthur, that love. Thank that, you so that is very such, much. such a great call and such a great question. Please call us again, yeah. Arturo. And yeah, Eddie, I think about this. Why, how, how can, if Jesus was about love, how can, be, how can Jesus be used as frequently as he seems to be in the pursuit of hate? Well, you know, you can go all the way back to, you know, Frederick Douglass. You know, the slave auction block was right next to the church steeple. You know, uh, mm -hmm. American Christendom has always been kind of shadowed by the contradictions at the heart of the country. Right? Where, where um, the splits within American Christendom uh, pre, you know, kind of foreshadow the Civil War. Right. Methodist South, Methodist North, you know, you know, Southern Baptist, all much of that is over over the issue of slavery. Um, when we think about how segmented, you know, the Sunday church hour is, how segregated it is, it's a reflection of of how uh, Christian uh, gospel has been, in so many ways, um, uh, uh, colored uh, by uh, certain noxious views about who who's valued, who who's God's chosen people, and the like. I think part of the story around white Christian nationalism has everything to do with the relationship between. Um, a certain kind of um, uh, religious right in the, in the 80s, early 80s, late 70s, and the increasing uh, uh, the increasing interrelationship between that that particular constituency and the Republican Party, and its ongoing radicalization. Right. So we have to begin to tell a story about white Christian nationalism and how intimately connected it has been and continues to be with the political party in the country. Mm. And of course, I just gave you a, a hint at the historical backdrop to that. But I, and I also need to say this, though, Brian, it's, mm -hmm. it's important that faith communities who disagree with white Christian nationalists be more aggressive in how they argue with these folk. I mean, when we tend to think of evangelicalism, right, we forget that Bishop Barber is an evangelical, right? Mm -hmm. he, he's organizing... Right. On the basis of a certain interpretation of the gospel. So we need to think about more progressive voices, whether they're within the Muslim community, the Jewish community, the Christian community, um, being more. Um, how can I put more active in challenging right, these particular interpretations 
of religious traditions that so, that nestle up so closely uh, with the fascism that we're seeing today. So as and, we begin to run out of time, and Rabbi Kleinberg, we have your, your line um, I'm, I'm connected again. Yes. A, a straight white cisgender male might ask, and especially many who vote Republican, since you both cited the Republican Party as the home for some of the worst, might ask, what about me? Everyone else seems to get coverage for being hated, and sure, that's real, but don't a lot of people hate me or us just for being white and straight and cis and male at this point? I don't feel like this person might say, I have much power anymore, since this often gets framed in power terms. Um, Is there any way to include me and not just make the worst assumptions about me, too, or ask things of me if we're going to make progress on all these things? We have a minute. (laughs) Well, I want to say the world that I want to be a part of creating is a world in which everyone uh, is an active part of building a world of justice and peace for everyone. There is no one left behind. And it's an issue of creating a system of values. Listen, anti Christian anti-Judaism comes hundreds of years before America was founded. These There are reasons that you could say that Jews should not want to work with Christians. It, you could argue that Nazism is a culmination of a thousand years of Christian anti-Semitism. The point is we have to find ways to build deep coalitions, not because of a shared experience of hate, but because of a shared vision of love. And everybody can be part of creating that vision of love. I don't think that we should focus on what we have to offer the world as Jews because of anti-Semites or as LGBT people because of uh, anti-gay people. We have positive things to create in the world that every single human being created in the image of God is a part of creating that world. Jay Caspian Kang, Eddie Glaude, Sharon (laughs) Kleinbaum, Thank you for spending so much time and going so deep with us. This was really special. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. May 2023 be a better year. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.